Hello, I'm Huron Zani, and thank you for joining me for more Barack Now. Barack Now. Barack Now. Welcome to Barack Now. On this podcast, we explore the music, people, and period instruments you may be discovering for the first time with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and our digital stage, Brandenburg One. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As always for Baroque Now, I'm joined by one of the brilliant musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. After three years of trying, Leila Shayeg has finally reached Australian shores to Brandenburg concertgoers and musicians' delight. Like me, I hope you'll enjoy getting to know more about the poet behind Poet of the Violin. So today on the program, I am very lucky to be joined by Leila Shayeg, who's come all the way from Basel. Basel, is that how we say it? Yes, I know, the French. The, the French normally say Basel. That's right, but because we are right on the corner of France. So we are on the corner of France, Germany and Switzerland. And there is even the bridge of three countries. So you can go just from one to the other. It's really actually amazing. So if you went fishing off the bridge, then I mean... You, you have French <laughs> fish, yeah, yeah. and German <laughs> fish as well. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a lot of fun. And, and it is a, a very convenient place in terms of travel. How was your trip? My trip was amazing. It was incredibly nice to go um, business class, I must say. I've never... No, that's not right. I did it once when I was 16 by chance because um, the the flight was overbooked and my mother got very upset at the check-in and so they kind of suggested we could go business class. And my mom said... Okay, (laughs) so that's what we did. But since I've never been in business class anymore, and I must say, thank you. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, it's a very long way to come, and we're very glad to have you with us. I Um, am as well. Today on the program, I was hoping to get to know you a little bit better and also um, give listeners the opportunity to discover a little bit about your musical world, all of the things that have inspired you or some of the things that have inspired you and perhaps uh, this project, how did Poet of the Violin even come into being and uh, some of the future projects that you're also working on. Yeah. So so maybe we could start uh, from your violin. It is an obvious place to start, um, being the name of the program. What can you tell us about this instrument and why is it so special? Um... Oh, that's a long story. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so when I was um, still a teenager um, t- and still at school, um, t- my teacher said it would be actually great if I already went a little bit into um, music theory also. And mm-hmm. um, that they organized me a private teacher um, who had a wife and this wife had a violin and um th- I, I i mean as i was a teenager like all all the others very insecure and full of complexes and i just had the feeling that everyone was just thinking that i was good on violin playing and not good for anything else so um it was great for me to go into those lessons because finally there was some 
one who actually picked me up on my intellectual level as well. And um, then one day I come there to his house and um, there's an old violin case um, lying on the table. And I thought, oh, my God, again, someone who thinks I'm only interested in violin. And it was really a big deception. So he said, yeah, you know, my wife has this violin um, for a very long time already. And we thought you might have a look at it. And I was very well um educated so I said yes of course I thought oh my god I'm so bored and um, so, so I took it out and it really looked just scrapped and really it's just an old thing there and and I played some notes on it and um out of um, out being of nice. Out of courtesy. So, yes exactly so yeah. I I played just some notes out of courtesy and and um, so, yeah, okay, it's just a violin. And then um, he said, yeah, how did you like it? And I said, yeah, of course, yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice. And <laughs> of course, I wonder, wouldn't say anything about what I was feeling inside. And then he said, yeah, it's Andrea Guarneri. And of course, I knew that, um, what that was. But but I was just like, my jaw just dropped. fell down. Dropped, really, but literally. And... Um, it, my head and my heart, it was all racing. And it was obvious that me as a 14-year-old teenager um, had absolutely no idea on what looking in when when you have violin. It's just, you, you just don't get this feeling of what a good instrument is right away. You have to, you have to see many instruments and get better and to, to just to start to realize but I was absolutely not on that point so we sat down to a lesson and he said yeah so, so how is your violin actually and I said um I yeah I have a nice violin I like it very much and at the same time still speaking I could have just pulled all my hair out of my head because it was so obvious where this was going so I went home and normally at that time, I would just still be in a state and in relation with my parents that I would tell them everything what was going on my day. But I, I was so angry at myself that I said to myself, you are not going to say anything and you're going to fix that next week. And you must know that I was an extremely shy kid. So just to open my mouth and to go just kind of find a way back to what had happened the week before and just to correct what I had said about my violin. It was a, probably one of the hardest things I had done just in communication until that point of my life. So I just waited silently one week and I went there again. And it, don't ask me how, but I kind of just turned the... The, 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 our conversation back to the violin and I said yeah just on the second thought I mean the, the, the violin is, I have is very nice but, but there will come soon the point where I would need another one a better one and um, I went home again and just, just like a couple of hours later they, they rang up and asked if I would be willing to play the violin. And it was in my head since. So, um, the, uh, and it was kind of, of course, it was in a modern state and I did all my all my studies on it and started to work on it. And then 
um, the, uh, I I went to the opera house in Zurich. I had had my first real job there, and then I got these ear problems um, because it was so loud down there that that um, I couldn't play anymore, and that's why I started actually to really go into historical informal practice and to go to study again and do. Um, the Baroque violin, which I was already interested before, I think we we will come back to that point later. And then th this lady, um, uh, whose name was Eleonore, and she was really like a second grandma to me. She was very disappointed that I was going into this Baroque playing because she couldn't understand in the beginning that I wouldn't um, use this instrument anymore, although it actually was from the Brock period, so it's from 1675. Yes, but as you were saying, it was in a modern a state. modern state. So um, uh, then one day I really took my heart in my hands and I went there for lunch and I just said, look, I want to talk to you about something and um, I really need you to think about it and not to answer right away. Uh, would you be um, willing that we transform transform the instrument back to towards an original state? And she said, oh, yes, I don't have to think about it. You have to do this immediately. So we did that. I did it in Paris and I brought the instrument. And when I picked it up again, um, both of them, so he and my former teacher, Andres, um, we went together to Paris to pick it up and to listen to it. And... It was amazing. And then the, I finished my studies, and this is also very Basel, so you might also want to know something about of, Basel. Of course. Yeah. Um, so you have, you must uh, know. So this is a little bit going back and forth, but, but who cares? Um, it, Basel is the most amazing place in Switzerland, especially when it comes to art, because um, there... I mean, there are many rich people in Switzerland, and but, but um, it f sometimes it feels like really old times that you have all those. It's not really sponsors, but it's like what princes have been before. There have there are many foundations. There are millions and millions. I heard lately. I think there are nine hundred millions lying around only in foundations in, in Basel. Uh. It's just really, really totally crazy. So like so a, a modern nobility. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so um, and people, just, they just have the feeling that it's just good to give their money for things like that. And um, this, um, this woman also came out of not a super rich family, but she still had this instrument. And uh, I mean, there is more into this instrument, but I can't do the whole podcast yeah. <laughs> about it. But anyway, um, she w she um, was originally from Basel herself, and um, so so what happened after my after I finished my studies of rock violin is also very typical for Switzerland and especially for Basel. Um, a little bit more high society people. So she invited me um, to, for lunch to celebrate. Um, the end of my second studies and in the end she gave me um, a plastic bag and in the plastic bag there was a kind of a um, map and I took it out and she said look at it at home and I kind of 
just thought, I mean, come on, it's, it's a plastic. It, it, it was one of those folders, you know, like like a like a folders with with a a gum closing and 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 I just open it up and she she insisted, look at it at home, and I just kind of couldn't stop. I just wanted to know what it, it was. It's clearly some formal stuff. And then I see on the first page, it was written here by, I declare um, that this violin is not in my possession anymore. It's going into the possession of Leila Shayek. And my children are aware and fine with it. And that's it. That's an incredible gift. What and I mean, what a story. It's, it's really and I started to cry and my first um, uh, my my first thing it, it was I was so overwhelmed but I was very angry actually. <laughs> I was angry that she would give me this instrument in this way just in a plastic bag. <laughs> I mean, uh, you can't do that. Come well, on. But but um it's it's um if you hear that story you know how people in Basel are they they just don't want to make a fuss out of their gesture. And I think it's the most noble way to give a gesture like this because there is no gesture big enough for just handing over in, in an instrument like this exactly it's i crazy. mean it, it not only is it an instrument but it's also a part of history and yeah. it's a part of uh, culture within european culture Absolutely. and it, it had um gone through many transformations before this you know transformation that you oversaw in paris mm. um to go back to a baroque state so it has a real history you know and that uh that comes out in the in the sound maybe tell us about the the sound so obviously over time uh, it grew on you, you know, yes. that, that sound. At what point did you really start to feel like you had connected fully with um, with the instrument? Or has that not happened yet? Is this oh, something yes, that... Yes, it has happened. Um, I don't r exactly remember when, but I actually I think it was after the changement. And um, it's uh, for, for me, it's um, I always... It's just my old lady. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and uh, I've also changed my technique um, all over. And of course, not only from modern technique to to, to Brock technique, but but even further to just really uh, go to the ground of the instrument. And and um, I think it has been now like only perhaps ten years that I have the feeling that I'm really on the bottom of of this instrument and uh, actually even even later it might be that in 2019 i kind of found a sound which is even big because this instrument was always considered to be rather one for chamber music not very loud but but um uh, but i think there is quite some sound in it yeah, and and obviously a lot of your recordings now, your more recent recordings, were all on this instrument yeah. too. So yeah. if if you when you look back, when you when you look at that previous work that you did, do you find points of difference that with, with what you were how you were sounding then as opposed yes, to now? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But I think that's not only the violin; it's also me. Yeah, and uh, I mean to put some um, relativism in there. Um, there is this amazing thing so if you take me and for example sean i will 
finally know tomorrow and another violin player and we will all share our instruments. If I will play Sean's instruments and then perhaps Tim's and Aaron's, um, they will all sound like mine. And if they will take my violin, so if Sean is playing mine, it will sound like Sean's instrument. So I think it's very much, of course, the color. It's, and there are differences, but, but there is something so personal in how you combine weight and boy, bow speed and, and um, just to, to seek for overtones in your sound which make a sound extremely personal. That's that's an incredible story. I mean, yeah. what a fantastic thing um, for our listeners to also um, get to know a little bit more into this um, this this violin that's been so publicized um, ahead of you coming out as well. So is there a recording or, or a piece of music that takes you back to that time as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old discovering um just how passionate you actually were about the violin, even though you say that, you know, it wasn't the the thing that you wanted to have as the only thing defining you and who is Leila Shag. What you know, you wanted to be more maybe than just a violin player. But is there a, a recording or or some music that takes you back to that time? Yeah, but perhaps I'm 14, 15, but a little bit later. So um so when I was um, 17 or 18 already, um, I was already about to finish my first studies. So I started very young. Um, the, and uh, we had John Holloway coming to Winterthur, my hometown, and giving a masterclass. And this was totally mind-blowing. It was the first time that I really came across someone who was living and doing historical informed practice and he was just standing there and I had prepared a rosary sonata actually we could play this the number six number six yeah we and uh, I played it to him and and um and he just started to ask all those questions which are, are now also my questions so how I don't don't didn't tell my students do this or do that but I always um, ask why are you doing this and why are you playing long here and why are you playing short here and what do you think um, uh, the composer has done and what do you think what does he mean with this and what is and of course with the rosaries it's very easy because you can speak about what is going on in this specific sonata so for example in the number six it's a blood sweating and um in the garden of Gethsemane and um, he's all alone and totally desperate and and it's it's really absolutely great so, so um to, to to give you an input of of um uh, of of this style and um uh, and I was really totally in into this and and um that John had just recorded his rosaries, and um, we organized one for the, for a tome. And I think this is, must be one of the recordings I have listened to the most in my life. So for you listeners, and it's actually available through Spotify as well as in other places, recorded in 1990, John Holloway playing Heinrich Ignaz Franz von Bieber's Violin Sonata Number no. 6 in C minor, 
The Agony in the Garden is the title as it's yes. given in, in, in English. So what you described, absolutely, you know, The Agony in the Garden. And, um, and this is just the, uh, the first movement of that uh, Sonata Number no. 6 in, in C minor. I'll bring John down just a bit so Layla and I, yeah. we can keep talking about this. So do you remember roughly what John talked about that day and, and why he made such a big impression on you? It, was it something about the way that he communicated or the way that he just, you know, held himself or played? I remember he was not playing. He was just, just talking about... Um uh, about the character of the piece and what it meant and and um, why Bieber chose this kind of scordatura so you you must uh, you must know that if the if he was playing this piece on a normal tuned violin it would sound awfully so you have actually to tune your chords in a different way so that it you can so so it sounds like that and um yeah, and and uh, he was he was just asking all those questions. I I can't really get, recall what he was saying. So, I mean, th th there were especially in this sonata, there are some some um, curious signs, and he explained what that meant. So so for example, for example, there were in the last part there are all those thirds, and um, between the two notes there is always a slash, kind of slash, which. Um, and I didn't know what it meant, and it, it, it means that you don't have to play them exactly at the same time, but uh, but um, like a little bit broken, uh, yeah, just not not together, not perfectly together. And um, also, he t he talked, of course, about um, this um, core moment in this sonata where you have um, 
where you have um, repeated notes doing like a little bit staccato wise it's a bit it's called bow vibrato for us and um the, 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 this is the moment where actually christ sweats blood and um the, then he was he was talking about how this had been a sign sign of high emotion used in many many other pieces and so uh, of course t t t nowadays i know and and it's also in bach so actually in in the bach um first movement of the um a minor violin solo sonata in the very end there is also this sign and and uh, we know now that probably this sonata was also um it, it, it describes exactly the same moment, this this um, first movement of the Bach solo sonata, that it's also also the, um, the this moment in Gethsemane. And, um, the, the, and, uh, the, and you can find it in so so many moments, even even with um, uh, Monteverdi. Monteverdi. Yes, exactly. So so, so it was but it was things people knew uh, because everyone. Um, listened to music or w w went to church, of course, and there was also music in the church. It's it's a little bit like, you know, as people couldn't read, they could listen and they could see. So it uh, it's like uh, like um, w when you went to church and there were were all those um, pictures everywhere. So people knew what the dog meant and knew what the what the dove meant and what was the signification of this flower or that way of turning the head and um and we all don't know this anymore but people back then they knew also because um, it was explained to them and they couldn't read so 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 um uh, also things like this so historical background so what it meant to be a person from back then and to listen to this music and what was in the music as so in the musical text so in the score and what was not what, what, what would have been totally normal to add like ornaments of course and when you would add them and when you would not and uh, and all those things it was like opening up a door to a new world it was absolutely mind-blowing well, I'm going to bring us forward in time and uh, actually to your recording of the Bach Sonatas and Partitas because thanks to the, the wonders of modern technology, uh, <laughs> I can skip straight ahead to that A minor sonata. Um, now, this, was, this album was released in 2021. Uh, did you want to tell us maybe about this particular sonata and where uh, this, this figure comes in, this Bovarbata that you're talking about, representing the sweating blood of yeah. Christ? It's um the, the third last note of the first movement. <laughs> so uh, there is a the theory actually that um uh, that you have three sonatas and three partitas. So the partitas are dancing the da the dancing suites, uh, like the suites for for cello, and and the, the sonatas they are like um like this um it's more the church sonata with its very um. Classical, not in the sense of classical and baroque, but but very standardized thing that you have a slow movement and then you have a fugue and then you have another slow movement and you have a fast movement. And um, so coming back to that, so there is this theory that the three sonatas are dedicated to the three big Christian um, holidays. So moments. So the first one, the G minor, would be. Um, 
uh, Christmas and the second would be um, Easter and the, thang- the, the, the third, the C major, would be Pentecost. And, and uh, what, what, um, the, uh, what is actually the b- b- best link to it is really a Pentecost because the, um, uh, the, the theme of the fugue is uh, Pentecost choral. Right. Yeah. 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 It is. Wow. And um, uh, I think, really, f- uh, frankly, in in uh, also in the other sonatas, there are um, things which which can can that can be seen as uh, as this. So, for example, uh, for example, you have uh, you have this um, uh, the the baseline of the very beginning of of. Uh, this of, the, of of the first movement of the A minor sonata, um, is it's a uh, starting like um, uh, it it's going da ba ba bum. It's like a passagalia actually. This passagalia bass, of course, and then it goes further, but but um, the passagalia bass is um, um, the, the, the circle, the symbol for circle of life and death, and then you have actually literally uh, um, you can see in the head of the fugue it looks like a crucifixion so it's like a crucifixion sign even if you sing that you actually you actually can show like someone who is actually making the cross the sign of the cross the sign of the cross and then you have uh, you you have always um a, a second voice of course um, there's a second theme in the, in the fugue, and it's a, a it's a chromatic line, da, dee, da, 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 which is also again the the chromatic version of the Passacaglia oh. bass, and um, a, a chromatic a, a chromatic line down. Everyone knew back then, so we're coming back to what 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 you listened, you knew what was meant. So, but going going down is um, is pain. And then when you inverse it, what Bach obviously did, da, dee, da, 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 then it's hope. So what what is more easier than pain and hope? And then the third movement goes um, has an extremely wonderful musical line, accompanied by the violin player himself with with a walking bass. So it's like the crossroad, of course, and then the last movement uh, has all these um, forty piano movements and many, many thirty seconds, and it must actually be the the earthquake, and it's the ripping part of the curtain in the temple. So, so for me, it's extremely logic. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you talk in such depth about um, about this iconography, musical iconography in mm-hmm. a way, because of course we don't necessarily have writings uh, by Bach himself to, to explain these things, but maybe in his time he didn't actually need to because as you're saying, it, it probably would have been very obvious as to what exactly he, mm-hmm. he meant by those by those gestures. But um, all, all the same, I think it's, it's um, almost easier now uh, to just, instead of saying a- any more, put on some of these musical ideas so that our listeners can actually hear and, and then uh, feel sure. feel some of that for sure. themselves. So let's start with perhaps the opening um, grave uh, from this violin sonata number two in A minor. 
and then we'll skip ahead to the uh, the the end of it actually so to be able to hear that uh, sweating uh, sweating blood and I'll ask you a few more questions It uh, pains me to bring this down so we can talk a little bit more because uh, obviously this is a fantastic album and very much worth the time listening to um, for listeners. Lots of recordings have been made of the Sonatas and Partitas. Uh, probably the, the two most influential for me have been actually discovering uh, not just your one but Shunsuke Sato's recording as, as well. And I've had the pleasure of working with both of you uh, now too. I don't think... It's um, it's an obvious thing per se for for listeners when they come across a new recording of these sonatas and partitas. Some of some of the things that you, the details that you're getting into. How was it that that you found all of that that out? Where where were the sorts of um, where were the sources where you started delving into this musical iconography idea with with regards to the sonata that cares a form and, and then the, these these things that you were talking about this imagery um, there is a German lady who um, actually d discovered it and made a book for each um, yeah, each sonata and uh, it was highly discussed in our society of uh, thing um, I must say, I confess, I've never read them because they're very, very, very thick and go so much into so many details that it's just totally mind-blowing. Uh, much like but almost everything to do with Herbach. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But but then apparently she she also goes it goes like in in details where you think, okay, come on, if you just count trills out to make sure that you have exactly the amount of of um, notes you need for that, then perhaps that's not the right way to go. But uh, anyway, I I just um, I think it's really for um, it's really great to kind of have this um, story behind in your head because it's so intellectual music that um, it helps to have a story. By the way, now the the thing is coming. the sweating. It's very, I mean, beautiful playing there, Layla. You should Thank be you. very happy with that. Um, 
it's incredible how that sounds so different to the the sorts of um, vibrato that we're we're used to hearing in a more modern context. Yeah. Maybe tell us about the technicalities of how you actually play that. How how that bow vibrato is actually produced. Um. It's it's um, almost like actually a very soft staccato. So you just don't pronounce um, it's uh, you don't stop your bow, but you kind of give like tiny tiny strokes with your index finger, by if without stopping the bow perfectly. Yeah. Now the other um, composer that um, I'd love to talk more about because he clearly is a huge inspiration for you is Jean-Marie Leclerc. Mm -hmm. Um, if Bach is essentially one of the zenith points of violin repertoire from a German-speaking perspective, mm -hmm. then Leclerc absolutely bringing Italianate style to the French people, you know, is a hugely important figure in musical history. What is it about Jean-Marie Leclerc and, and how did you end up, you know, falling in love with his music? <laughs> um, actually, I it's um, thanks to my... One and only, not only great teacher, but really um, the, a very, very important figure in my life as well is Chiara Banchini, with whom I studied at the Scuola. And, um, and she, uh, she, she is from the, the Swiss-Italian part of Switzerland, but um, speaks perfectly French, but this has nothing to do with Leclerc. But no, she had an absolutely fantastic ensemble and invited me... Um, uh, towards the end of my studies to play one of the Leclerc concertos with her ensemble in Versailles. Uh, it was a huge thing for me and I, I um, and back then there were just uh, no th you just couldn't find any music of it so so there were no the, 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 you, you must know there was no IMSLP. That's yet. right. It's not like no, today. No, yeah. no. <laughs> and um, it, and just just to get to get the facsimile was not so easy. And um, so we we kind of tried to find what was there. And basically, I think there were two concertos in the library in an old um, uh, modern edition, and uh, there was the. Opus 7, number 2. Yes, Opus 7, number 2. So I decided to go with this one, and I love it. It's wonderful. It's very, very nice. And um, I was so fond of those this concerto that I started to look at the others, others too. And I I kind of, shortly after, I don't know why, but but shortly after we, um, we got a facsimile as well. And, um, and I started to look at all of them and... I thought, my God, that would be an awesome thing to record, actually, because the last recording they did 30 years earlier with Simon Standage. And um, and no one wanted to play them ever. I just never, never, ever saw them on programs, in concerts, nothing. And I just thought, hey, come on, guys, there is not only Vivaldi and Bach out there. Well, there maybe because so they're too hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, come on. So Vivaldi yeah. can be very hard yes, as well. Yes, of course. But, but in a different way. And, and um, I don't know. I think like... Um, Leclerc must have been a little bit a kindred spirit. <laughs> um, I, so I, of course, I started to read a lot about him, and I think he was um, um, a very introverted person. So I'm as well, and a very proud person. 
I think I'm as well. And um, I think he was um, very into elegant clothes. I'm as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, t uh, and t liked things to be very proper. So I'm not going to say I'm as well. It, it, it yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, he liked to be very proper um, uh, also in his playing. So uh, and to just to have everything super neat and clear and then to just give an incredible depth into this neat and clear playing that was really his style and and um i think he he um he didn't like um so much to be with other people so that's clearly what would wouldn't have me so i really love being being very communicative but but um he um he was a dancer at at first so he uh, um before he got into a really huge violin career, and um, and um, th th this kind of dancing is everywhere in his music, also in his concertos, and you can really feel that there is someone who has a very clear feeling about not only timing but also space. I don't, I can't really tell you why, but but you, you kind of have have the feeling that he uses the space on the violin perfectly. So just he uses just everything, and he just knows how to go from the big to the small, and from the small to the big, and and just to place things perfectly. And he, of course, as a dancer, he he um must have had a perfect control over his body and i think that also made him to be a very perfectly controlled violin player but that's the thing so i think he controlled extremely well his technique and um he wanted to so not just to show everything like in a show that was more for the italians anyway so but but um just um to 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 always take his own feelings a little bit uh, uh, back, but th then to show it even more, but in not just in such an obvious way. Mm. And that's that's one thing which uh, perhaps that's the Swiss part of me. I mean, I have also a running part, but but that's it. that's the Swiss part of me that I actually don't like to go super fast and just to sh to sh I th the show off. I, I hate to show off. <laughs> I just I really I don't like this. And still, I I love being on stage. I think it was the same with him. He just li liked to kind of to show in a way that he was the best by not showing that he was the best. Yes. And that's also why why actually he had such a hard time in life. And and in the end, he ended up all alone, divorced by his wife, who actually printed all his music, by the way, and. Um, yeah, and he was even stabbed probably by his uh, by, by his nephew. Well, there are three culprits that are potentially culprits. yeah, yeah, yes, the, gardener, yeah. The, the gardener, the wife, and and the nephew. Yeah, the nephew. <laughs> I know, uh, but um, poor him. And then they just found in the in an almost empty house. Um, the, the, I think two very valuable violins and and very very valuable clothes. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but but um, the, uh, he must have been a figure, and um, the, uh, and I just love the way he composes it's very very complex and yeah. still you, you always know where to listen i mean you, you when when you uh, i think it's very quite it, interesting to have um, those two pieces in the program so leclerc and bach concerto because um 
Bach, obviously, he's very, very complex and just is moving around all, all the voices at the same time and there is so much going on. Uh, while Leclerc is already more like Vivaldi style, so you have the tutti and then you have the, the, the solo parts. But, but still, um, very often the, um, the, uh, the, the orchestra has a main role to play and um it's uh, and it's very complex things going on there so so that's that make it makes them kind of interesting to compare absolutely and i was going to put on actually the third movement the final allegro from the opus 10 number 5 that you've mm -hmm. d decided to bring out originally yeah. you were going to do opus 10 number 6 but then yes, you then you've changed yeah, yeah i know to give listeners a taste for for exactly what you're talking about because you can hear that dancing in this movement so clearly yeah. So this is from your album, which was released in 2022, Leclerc Concerti per, per Violino. Um, did you want to say something about this album before before I put it on? Yes, that's the one we had to postpone because of the first um, lockdown, and um, the, the, it was it amazing to get get there. I think it was probably the first gig for many of us. Um, just after three months of a break and really some people cried coming yeah. in there in that church and and to work together and to play together it felt really like a huge gift to being able to do so and i think we kind of hear that it was just such a joy being able finally to work together again so this is Leila Shaig and La Cetra Baroque Orchestra performing Jean-Marie Leclerc's concluding allegro from the Violin Concerto in E minor, Opus 10, Number 5. <laughs> Much like this music, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today, Leila, and getting you to know too. you a little bit better. Yeah. Um, what are you most looking forward to yourself in this concert series with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra? What are you looking forward to? Oh, 
I'm looking forward to meeting all those musicians and and the people behind the musicians and to um, work together and make music together because um, for me going to other countries and always meet other people the most fascinating is always how how the programs and the pieces I bring um, change with the people I'm playing with so it won't be the same thing in Toronto I actually I have been this playing this concerto in May in Toronto as well so I think it will be really different because because it's just not not the same people and I evolve and and I'm just always very curious about how I change because I never I'm never the the the, the, the conductor and the chief who says this is the way we are going it to do but but I always move to, to, towards the people so it's a, always a work in progress and I'm th that's why I'm always super curious to see how actually we get together not how they are coming to me and that's that and and also to play the program eight times I think that will be quite 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 an experience absolutely I, yeah. yeah and um i think to that point as well about um coming together and and how every ensemble is is different it's even every performance is is different, different you know which course. is what's so wonderful about live music you know we can listen to your recordings and enjoy them very much so but it's not the same as no. actually being there in the hall no. yeah absolutely and that's also a thing actually that, that good for you good you point you're pointing this out um there is to meet the public because the public um in every country is very different and then the the public from the from day to day from concert to concert is also different and sometimes you can uh, you can feel them very good and sometimes you don't really get the connection and um, of course the more the public is is listening and uh, implicated and the more we can we can go to them and they can come to us um, it's a different experience well there's a lot of beautiful music in this program and I'm sure all of the audiences that you're going to <laughs> you're just about to encounter uh, are going to be coming and and clapping and having a fantastic time I hope so Thank you again, Leila. Yeah, thank you, Hugh. This is your host, Hugh Ronzani. Thank you for joining Leila and I for this episode of Baroque Now. If you haven't already, book your tickets before they're gone for Poet of the Violin at brandenburg.com.au. And as you can hear, the silly season and Noel Noel is fast approaching. Don't miss out on your chance to join us for this festive Brandenburg tradition. Tickets for Noel Noel are also available at brandenburg.com.au.